The United Soccer Coaches is proud to present the United Soccer Coaches podcast, presented by Team Snap and hosted by veteran soccer broadcaster Dean Linky. That's right, the NSCAA is now the United Soccer Coaches. We aren't changing who we are, just what you call us. Start your free, no-risk trial membership today. Go to unitedsoccercoaches.org slash join today. We unite coaches at every level of the game around the passion of the game. Now, here's our host, Dean Linky. I am Dean Linky, and welcome to our Championship Coaches edition of the United Soccer Coaches podcast. All season long, I've been telling you that we will visit with every champion at the college level. Last week, we had Paul Ratcliffe on from Stanford. He went out and won the Women's College Cup. This week, we've got the Championship Coaches from D2 Men and Women, the Championship Coaches from D3 Men and Women, and the Championship Coaches from NAIA Men and Women. It's also a big time for soccer in this country. MLS Cup is this weekend. The College Cup for Men's is this weekend. And Sunil Galati has announced that he will not run for re-election as U.S. Soccer President. To break all those stories down, we've got the 30-year veteran journalist for the Washington Post, Stephen Goff, to kick off the show. Then the United Soccer Coaches, Rob Keel. Then all six national championship coaches. And we get back to business with the 30 Under 30 program as well. One of their members for the United Soccer Coaches 30 Under 30s, Neil Oyston, will wrap up the show. A big one. Let's get it rolling after this message from Team Snap. Managing your club or league shouldn't feel like a second job. With Team Snap, it doesn't have to. They help their customers save time and sanity on tasks such as communication, registration, scheduling, and more. Bring your club or league into the 21st century with Team Snap. Go to TeamSnap.com. Once again, here's Dean Linky. Okay, as you just heard coming up, we'll talk to six national championship coaches crowned this weekend, but it's another big week in soccer in this country. Sunil Galati announcing he's not running for re-election. We've got the MLS Cup in Toronto, the College Cup in Philadelphia, and here to cover it all. Stephen Goff, who's been writing for the Washington Post and covering soccer for 30 years, is kind enough to join us now and kick things off. Stephen, great to be with you. Great to join you, Dean. Yeah, delighted to be with you. Biggest news uh, this week, Sunil Galati deciding that he's not going to run for re-election as U.S. soccer president. Tell us why you think he made that decision and what it means. Well, I think uh, there was a lot of pressure on him after the World Cup failure to step aside. He resisted that initially, but I, I think he, he put a lot of thought into you know whether he wanted to go forward for a fourth term, whether fresh ideas and a fresh perspective were needed at the Federation. Ultimately, I think he decided that you know it was time for a change and that people that he, that he trusts and likes were telling him that. It's not like he's going to disappear. He's a member of the powerful FIFA Council. He will continue to oversee the efforts to bring the 2026 World Cup to North America. That decision by FIFA will come in June. So it's a critical time for U.S. soccer, and I think Gulati's legacy, he'd like (laughs) to be not missing the World Cup, but for securing the World Cup coming back to the United States as well as Mexico and Canada in 2026. So I think that's where his mind and heart are right now. Mention the word legacy. Uh, as it is right now, what will be the legacy of Sunil Galati? It's all tied to 2026 is what you're saying? I think in large part, if the U.S. and Mexico-Canada win the bid, which they should, he will certainly gain a lot of credit for that. It's not the most rigorous competition. <laughs> the only other candidate to host is Morocco, which just seems woefully inadequate to 
to stage a, a 48-team World Cup, let alone a 32-team World Cup. If he's able to um, usher that through for North American soccer, then he'll receive a lot of credit. And going forward, he'll have a major role in the organization and, and execution of the competition. Because of that natural alliance with FIFA, obviously, I think it'll make sense that somebody who wins the presidency has a good relationship with him. So with that, is it Kathy Carter that jumps to the front over some of these celebrated players? What's your take right now on just a hodgepodge of uh, names here for yeah. U.S. soccer president? Yeah, hodgepodge is a good way of describing it. You know, we haven't had any contenders over the years. Neil's always run unopposed, and, and now you've got this glut of candidates, very different backgrounds. You know, Kathy Carter certainly has been in, in the soccer industry, in the soccer business. I think being female perhaps will help her a little bit. There's never been a female president of the USSF. There's no female candidates in the field. She certainly, I think, has the backing of many in the uh, the Federation membership. We'll see. You know, people are screaming for change, and, and taking someone from within the, the soccer industry might not be that call for change. The true insider candidate is Carlos Cadero, the vice president. And then you have the players who have never run an organization. They certainly seem to have something to add to the conversation. Is that enough to run U.S. Soccer Federation and, and represent U.S. soccer around the world? Not sure. Then you got a couple of attorneys. you got a soccer uh, executive from Western Massachusetts as well. Wide open. We'll see December 12th is the deadline for securing nominations. You need three of them to get on the ballot. Not everyone's going to get on the ballot. That'll wean the list a little bit ahead of the, the two-month stretch of, of campaigning and, and ultimately the, the election in Orlando on uh, February 10th. Here with Stephen Goff, 30 years with the Washington Post, six men's World Cups, four women's World Cups. And Steve, before we move to MLS Cup, probably nobody was closer as a journalist to Bruce Arena than you, including his time at Virginia. Talk about the legacy as well. I mean, here's a guy who was revered for what he did at Virginia and then with USA and then in MLS. What about his legacy after, let's call it a debacle? Yeah, the general feeling was, you know, Bruce was going to come back get the team to the World Cup, whether it was pretty or not, his legacy would have been secured no matter how they did in Russia. Expectations are always tempered with the U.S. team, barring three losses and a 10 nothing goal differential. Bruce's legacy remains pretty strong. But now he failed. He had eight games out of the 10 to get it right, and in the end they didn't, and that certainly reflects poorly on him. People are going to remember that. You know, it ends a long streak of World Cup appearances. To go out the way they did, failing to even get a draw at Trinidad, reflects on, on the coach, no matter who it is. So does he fade so, off into the sunset, or does he come back and do something somewhere? Uh, that's a good question. Um, 66 now, I believe. You know, I don't know. I, I mean, I, I think he would like to get into you know some sort of management or front office position. I, I, I don't know if he'll coach again, whether he wants to go back into MLS, whether he, you know, perhaps pursue a general manager um, or president of operations somewhere in MLS. I wonder, too, whether the failure of this qualifying campaign weighs on him and he feels he needs to do something more after falling short in such a big moment. The legacy has not been um, quite written yet. The last chapter remains. Fair enough. Okay, MLS Cup, you will be in Toronto for the rematch of Toronto and Seattle. Yeah, it's a great matchup. Two big clubs, if you want to call them that, because they they spend a lot of money and they're in big markets with strong uh, support, big names on the field. Everyone loves a good rematch. You know, I think Toronto's been the best this year. I've just felt all along it's, it's been their year. 
Seattle, though, after a few struggles here and there, is is back where where they belong in the postseason. I think Seattle's been the better team than Toronto. You know, Toronto had some shaky moments in the past couple rounds. They could have gotten knocked off. It's going to be a terrific match. I wouldn't be surprised if it goes to penalties again. Still giving Toronto a slight edge just because they're at home and, and they've been the best team all year. I think they'll, they'll rise to the occasion. Of course, I wouldn't be surprised if Seattle uh, repeats as champion. College Cup also this weekend. You can't yeah. be both places at once, so you won't be in yeah. Philadelphia. But a great Final Four, Indiana, yeah. North Carolina. Gosh, I love that match matchup. Akron has played great soccer forever, and they're back on top. Stanford, your back-to-back national champion. It's a pretty exciting Final Four for the men. Give us your take on that Final Four. Stanford has the experience, having won the past two championships. Because of that, they'll be a slight favorite. Uh, against Akron, and then you got Indiana and Carolina. You know, Indiana hasn't lost this year. You know, a bunch of ties, but they have not tasted defeat, and they didn't trail all year until last week. Incredible, and regularly, I think you have a surprise team in the Final Four. I, I don't think any of these teams are surprised, certainly based on seeding. Stanford, the two-time champion, is the lowest seed to get this far as the number nine. The College Cup semifinals are usually better than the final, just because there's such a short period of time between the matches and who knows what the weather and the field conditions and everything else in a northeastern city like Philadelphia are going to be like this weekend. So I think we'll probably see some good stuff on Friday. Expectations are much lower on on Sunday. Let me jump in there, Stephen, on that, because particularly since you've been covering Maryland forever and the incredible success of Sasha Swarovski, and obviously I've done Big Ten Network games forever and since they've come on and done a lot of Maryland games and the notion of a year-round college season when we get to Philadelphia, because you're going to have these four great teams, you're going to have the cold weather, you're going to have the turnaround in 36 hours, and you're not going to have anybody in the stands. Rob Keel is going to come on a little later to talk about it, but Sasha's mission for that full academic year, it's going to gain a lot of credibility. It already did down in Orlando where it didn't look like a thousand people were there watching UCLA Stanford, and now it's going to be the same. So you've heard it. (laughs) I'm sure Sasha spent time with you talking about it. What's your take, particularly knowing what we're going to be seeing this weekend? Four great teams with limited people in the stands. Yeah, ideally you'd like that, that full year season. I'm certainly no expert on this, but my hunch is is that unless it works for both the men and the women, I don't know if it goes forward just because of uh, equality issues. And, and right now, the, the women aren't as enthusiastic about the move to full season as the men are. So I think that's going to become an issue. And as we know, the NCAA legislation and infrastructure is difficult to navigate. And I and that's what Sasha and Rob and, and the others have been, have been working through for several years now. Hopefully, someday it happens, because ideally, you want your college cup to be the pinnacle, the culmination of something spectacular. And you just can't do that in December with a cram schedule and weather concerns and everything else. Sasha has just talked about how he wants it to be like the NCAA lacrosse Final Four, which you know is played on Memorial Day weekend, draws great crowds, the weather is usually nice. It's a celebration of the sport. Right now, you really don't have that unless you're associated with one of the Final Four teams or really into college soccer, you're just not paying much attention, I don't think. Steve Goff, 30 years, the Washington Post. Don't remind me. 
Yeah, you do a great job, though, Stephen. You're looking good as well. Thanks. Uh, thanks always man. enjoy catching up with you and um, hope to see you maybe at the convention down the road. And uh, thanks for yeah. all you do covering soccer in this country. You're the best, Dean. I'm not. But speaking of the best, this past weekend, seven national champions were crowned. Last week's show, we talked to Paul Ratcliffe. He went on and won the Division One Women's National Championship down in Orlando. The D2 Men's and Women's Champions were crowned. The D3 Men's and Women's Champions were crowned. And the NAIA Men's and women's teams were crowned. We'll talk to all six of their coaches. But before we do that, Rob Kehoe gets us ramped up on the College Cup this weekend in Philadelphia for the men and Stanford's run through the College Cup down in Orlando. Rob Kehoe's next. Looking for ways to improve your training sessions? Quick Goal has supplied the highest quality soccer goals, seating, field, and training equipment for over 30 years. From backyards to the world's greatest pitches, Quick Goal has products essential for every level of the game. As an official partner to the United Soccer Coaches and technical partner to U.S. Soccer, Quick Goal knows what equipment you need to take your game to the next level. Visit quickgoal.com to satisfy all your equipment needs. Welcome back. Big show today, as you know, so let's get right to work. Rob Kehoe, the Director of College Programs for the United Soccer Coaches, joins me now to break down Division One soccer. Rob, let's get right to it. Sanford Cardinal walking away with the women's title, the College Cup. Well, they were definitely the class of the field, and they showed it from not only the outset of the College Cup weekend, but throughout the whole year. They opened the year with two wins, then had a loss, and then ran off 22 straight wins to complete the championship season. They had 19 shutouts in that run, and they showed their class this weekend. They played the first semifinal game against South Carolina. Stanford got a goal in the 10th minute from Jordan DiBiase, and again in the 25th minute, and then it was one-way traffic in the second game was an end-to-end game, Duke against UCLA, and it was really up and back, and they go for 110 minutes and then to penalty kicks with UCLA prevailing 4-3 to in the penalty. Interesting with that, where Stanford, they didn't really have that much of a challenging game. They got to use a lot of players in the game, were able to play their semifinal at somewhat of a relaxed pace after going up 2-0, and then UCLA had to go end-to-end-to-end-to-end to end to end to end to end against Duke. And Stanford gets off the field about 7 o'clock on Friday evening. UCLA gets off probably around 10 o'clock and back to eating hotel, etc. late. And then they have to play at noon on Sunday. How much that factored into the outcome, no one will ever know. But Stanford again went up 2-0. UCLA came back in the second half, scored two goals in about four minutes to tie it up. And then Stanford put the game away in the 67th minute on a beautiful goal by Jay Bossieri. It was just a classic left-footed goal, bended around the goalkeeper for the win. So it was really a, a fitting outcome for Stanford. Again, as I mentioned, they were the class in the field. The one thing that was relatively disappointing about the event was the fact that it was a beautiful stadium, beautiful weather, beautiful field, very good teams, but poor attendance uh, relative to this being the showcase for Division I women's college soccer, but certainly the play on the field was the showcase of the quality of these teams. Now the men in Philadelphia, boy, what a Final Four. Are you kidding me? Indiana with their eight stars, the North Carolina Tar Heels, attractive soccer, the Akron Zips back in the Final Four, and your two-time defending champion, Stanford. Wow, Rob. Yes, this is 
certainly an exciting college cup with these four teams. And Stanford had to go on the road to Wake Forest, number one seed, as they did two years ago. And they go down there in front of about 4,700 people at that packed Spry Stadium in Winston-Salem and score in the 37th and 53rd minute and then shut Wake Forest out, which is a really hard task to do. And and they qualify for their third straight college cup with reigning champion back-to-back. UNC held off Fordham, where UNC took him the 61st minute to score. And then Fordham comes right back in the 63rd and scores. And then UNC gets the game winner in the 83rd, so they're back to the College Cup for the second year in a row as well. Akron, that's just been on a roll, as we've been talking about each week in this podcast, where they continue their role. They play high-quality soccer. They went to Louisville at the beautiful new Lynn Stadium there. Over 3,000 people packed that stadium. They had to stay there for a good while. 0-0 tie through the 110th minute. And then Akron wins in penalty kicks 4-3. to three. Then we had the Big Ten battle, Michigan State against IU. I've heard that the crowd was over 6,000. They advertised, I think it was around 5,500 attendance, but I was told they just quit counting the students because they got in free. They went to a 1-1 one, one tie. Michigan State scored in the second minute and held off Indiana until the 60th, and then they go to penalty kicks also, and IU prevails 3-2 to two there. So it's going to be exciting Final Four where you have Stanford and Akron playing and Both were in the College Cup two years ago. When you look at the maturity of a Stanford where they have Foster Langsdorf, Thomas Hilliard Arce, who've been there now their third time in a row, and they've certainly been the core of that group, and they certainly know how to win in that College Cup. And then you have IU. I think this is their 19th appearance in the College Cup, and UNC that were there last year, and IU fortified with Grant Lillard, Cam Lindley for UNC. So this should be not only a star-studded Final Four, but also one of a lot of good quality soccer at the Talent Energy Stadium in Philadelphia. All right, your take so far on the tournaments and the Final Fours, Rob, I know you've got uh, a pointed one. Well, as mentioned about the Final Four, it's a showcase of college soccer, and here we are in a beautiful stadium, beautiful weather, and you have two semifinals on Friday, one at 5 o'clock and one at 7.45. It's hard for people to get to a game at 5 o'clock on a Friday in a downtown city situation, and then to try to sit through two games. The attendance there was probably maybe around 2,000 in a 25,000-seat stadium. And then Sunday, probably closer to 500. And again, I was there. I counted seats and I counted people. When you think about the showcase of the event for these kids and how we want to try to make their championship experience the best it could possibly be, I think we need to really relook at the format. And that's not United Soccer Coaches because we're always pushing so that we can get this format right. So it's continued communication with the NCAA on this. And when you think of it, I mean, even the quarterfinals at UCLA, for instance, UCLA had 2,900 for their quarterfinal game against Princeton. South Carolina was well over 2,000. Stanford had over 2,200 at their stadiums. And those are small stadiums. They're packed and they look great. When we think about atmosphere and, and all, that's certainly a concern. Again, 
for the championship experience as well as the presentation of the game. Anticipating going to Philadelphia this weekend out in Chester, Pennsylvania. It's a hard place to get to, certainly a hard place to get to on a Friday late afternoon on I-95. The first game starts at 6 p.m. and the second game starts at 8.45. The weather is probably going to be freezing in the evening, so we have these class teams that are playing high-quality soccer, and we're going to have a challenging recipe to try to make the presentation of the game that which is fitting of the showcase of Division I men's college soccer. So that's the disappointment that we continue to encounter with this and something that gives us certainly work to do to try to improve the conditions for these student athletes, their teams, their schools, as well as the sport of college soccer. All right, Rob, I will see you in Philadelphia. Look forward to spending time with you and Steve Veal and Jeff Van Dusen and all the great people at United Soccer Coaches. Thanks so much for your regular visits with me. I appreciate it. My pleasure, and I'll look forward to seeing you in Philadelphia. So in Philadelphia, we'll crown our final champion in Philadelphia. Last week, we talked to Paul Ratcliffe, the head coach the Stanford Cardinal. He won the national championship. We've got our D2 national championship coaches when we come back. By being a member of the United Soccer Coaches, you are a part of the world's largest network of soccer coaches. Here, you can find coaches who are passionate about bettering themselves and their players. Go to unitedsoccercoaches.org to find out more. Now, once again, here's our host, Dean Linky. Welcome back to our championship coaches edition of this week's United Soccer Coaches podcast, where we are talking to six of the champions crowned this past weekend and for D2 women. How about the Central Missouri Jennies winning their first title? They beat Carson Newman 5-3 in penalty kicks after a 1-1 score, and we are joined by their 11th year top man who's been knocking on the door, by the way, a couple of lead eights mixed in there, talking about Lewis Theobald. Lewis, you are the national champion coach for D2 Women. How's that sound? Sounds really, really good. Really proud of my kids and our program. All right, before we get to what took place during the Final Four, tell us all about your university, the Central Missouri Jennies. Where are you located? What makes it so special, Coach? We're located 35 miles, uh, basically southeast of Kansas City, suburbs of Kansas City. So that's where the bulk of our kids come out of, to be honest. And we're a Division II school that about 14,000 students have a really strong athletic tradition and programs across the board in all sports and I uh, think that you know, we're making a difference here in a lot of different ways. It's a great institution, a college town. Our job placement rate's really, really high. Our education's quality and uh, a lot of great things happening on our campus every day. And Lewis, I can't be the first person to say, Coach, uh, what's a Jenny? So the Jenny is uh, basically the university, the male sports here are known as the Mules and uh, the Jennies is the, basically a female version of, uh, of a mule, and uh, it's the state animal of Missouri, believe it or not. There you go. Well, tell us about what took place during the Final Four, the semifinal game and how that went, and then uh, the electricity winning in PKs. Had a really, really difficult game in the Elite Eight against Grand Valley. It was at home, and so we had a lot of emotion after that game. So we had a break. You know, we had that 10-day kind of gap between games, the way Division Two does it, and uh, I think that was good for us to kind of re-energize and get refocused on the Final Four. And had a really, really good start against Mercy because they're really good and we were up a couple goals against Mercy they came out in the second half and we're the better team for the opening 10-15 minutes of that half until we got the third goal and that kind of killed the game off but uh, Mercy gave us all sorts of trouble in the second half of that game and thought they were really good and really well coached and uh, organized and then had the opportunity to watch Carson Newman play in the semifinal and knew how good and athletic and strong they were and thought it was going to be probably the best test we'd had all year and, and it didn't let down I thought we had a great turnout you know just under 3,000 
UCM fans showed up to support us, and it was kind of a sea of red in, in, the, in the crowd, and it made for a great atmosphere, and the tempo of the game was so fast, and they scored a great goal with, through some good combination play to, to take the lead, and, and we were chasing the game the rest of the way, and felt like as the game went, we were getting opportunities, and just they just weren't coming, weren't coming, and then uh, 30 seconds left, we get a penalty kick to tie it up, and the momentum was definitely on our side at that point, and both teams had opportunities in overtime and went to a shootout, and our kids made all five. Our goalkeeper made a save, and, and that was it. So it's kind of like a fantasy to win it the way we won it, like fantasy world, you know, to tie it up with 30 seconds left. You know, we thought, to be honest, we thought the game had gone away from us, and Carson Newman was really good and really deserving and just felt really lucky to find a way to win the game. So exciting, and uh, you look at uh, what you've done there, dominant since you've arrived in the MIAA, but then the last three years, Coach, 21 wins and 14 and 15 and another 21 plus this year people are getting used to you winning some games so it's nice to win that last one too right yeah i mean i think you got to take when opportunity strikes and you know we were senior heavy we'll be totally different next year and if we were going to have a year to do it this was by our best opportunity in a long time and and will be for a few years and the senior group was really really special and the big push was to get to the final four and anything on top of that would be bonus and they're really deserving good people and deserved an opportunity and to win the championship was just icing on the cake all right let's talk about how you got to this point because when you look at your bio it's awesome Mm -hmm. because it wasn't like uh, you were a star soccer player at kansas they didn't have a team you were a star for the cross-country team as well i mean that's incredible four-year varsity letter in cross-country indoor and outdoor track at Kansas, yep. Rock Chalk Jayhawk, yep. how in the world did all this happen? It's a kind of a long story, but I was born in England, but grew up in Canada, so my family's first love was probably soccer and played growing up. My dad was a coach through club teams and whatnot. To be honest, when I, I played three sports growing up, I played soccer, obviously, and then hockey up in Canada, and then and ran track, and thought track was my best opportunity out of college to be really good at something, so had the opportunity to go to KU and that was over. I missed soccer and stayed engaged with it even when I was there and watched the women's team there. And when I went to student teach and because I had a degree in education, I worked at Lake East High School under Terry Hare and he's still the best coach I've ever been around. So I did that and then they opened up a new high school in Latha, which is a suburb of Kansas City and started that program for years, a few years. And then Vernon Croft gave me an opportunity to go into the college game at Indiana State and was only there eight to nine months. And, and when UCM opened, I pursued uh, that job and had worked my way through the different education, coaching education courses and, and learned through trial and error. And certainly a different path to getting here, but I wouldn't change it. Learned a lot about myself and I could not walk into any locker room anywhere and just get instant credibility on a playing background. So I have, I have to try to earn it through the way we treat people and the way we run our training sessions and educate people. So really feel fortunate to have the, the coaching education opportunities that have been presented to me and to be around some really good coaches that I've stolen ideas from. So it's also a lot of the success you have, I think, is where you're at. And being at Central Missouri makes it really easy. It's a pretty elite environment to be in across the board, so it makes my job a lot easier. What do you remember about uh, walking in for this interview process for this job 11 years ago with just that high school and the nine months at Indiana State and saying, hey, I can coach these young women and I can do a good job. I mean, how did you convince them that uh, you were the man? You know, when the job opened, before it really opened, I was in my office at Indiana State and had a recruit call me and say, you know, I heard you guys are leaving. And I was like, man, I don't, I don't know anything about that. But they said, you know, the Central Missouri, it was a, a recruit at Kansas City, said I heard a, uh, the Central Missouri coach is leaving to go to, to Indiana State. And it was actually, I knew Indianapolis had just opened. Drew Roth had gone to Illinois State. 
who's now at Purdue. I connected the dots, so I called Central Missouri and asked them if they were looking for a coach because I knew the Kansas City area so well. So I talked to them about, you know, when I called, I was probably the first person I called. I said, hey, I'd love an interview, and I had a bunch of people call on my behalf out of the Kansas City area and, and had some coaches call to help, and I got an interview and came in. I had a pretty detailed plan. I, I put together a pretty good book, I think, of this is what I think could happen here. And then just put my head down, and, and then when I got the opportunity, and it was just a lot of work, you know. But loved every minute. I love it here. You know, love every minute of it, and feel really fortunate. I think uh, any soccer coach, you know, you don't feel like it's a job. It's what you do, and you just go get good people. But to have the success that we've had, you know, you need a lot of luck along the way, too, and things need to go your way. I feel really lucky. Obviously, you do love it. Uh, you got your twin boys, Gavin and Gareth, and daughter Meredith, so it sounds like it's it's home now. This place is great to families. My kids love they they know they know, they know all my players and they're at team dinners and they get to know all the recruits and it's pretty awesome. Yeah, we love it. It's definitely home. You know, I don't know if we'll ever win another championship again. We'll work hard, but uh, more important than that, we're trying to put balance in these kids' lives to be better people and I think being around family is a really important part of that. Well, speaking of family, the United Soccer Coaches, formerly the NSCAA, has always been about family and unity and equality and involving everybody and obviously not too far from you as well there in Kansas City. And one of the things I loved as you told your story is you focused on coaching education. You know, you went through U.S. soccer, but you also spent time with the then-named NSCAA. This is the United Soccer Coaches podcast. You're a stone throw away. I got to believe this organization's meant a lot to you and, and helped you get this job. Well, Jeff Van Dusen, who's in charge of uh, the events and the conventions type stuff, he was the head coach at UCM prior to me. Through that connection, obviously, he's been really supportive. But I took a coaching course, an advanced national course in a suburb at another university. Jason Pendleton and some other of the other instructors have, were really informative and really helpful. It was one of the best courses I've ever taken. And I took that course after I had my A license, so I could have went straight into the premier course, but I was really happy I took that course because it, it gives you a different perspective and a different look on things. I think you just keep stealing ideas, but how open and friendly and willing people are to share in that organization and is really important. And anyone who sticks around on our program as a graduate assistant, we get them a membership and, and get them the courses so that they can start to build the structure of their training sessions and, and get a better understanding of how it should all go together. From the cross-country course and the track and field course at Kansas to the sidelines for Central Missouri to holding up a national championship trophy, what a great story. I absolutely Love it. Glad you shared it. Hope that uh, I can shake your hand in Philadelphia at the convention. Tell me you're going to be yeah. there. Oh, uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We've already booked up. Can't wait. Have we? I can't remember. How, it's been a lot of years in a row. Terry Hare, who I worked for at Lacey East, uh, my very first year took me to my first convention. It was in Indianapolis. I, I still remember getting on the plane and going, and that's a long time ago. But I've been every year since and uh, continue the plan going. And you, know, you see a lot of the same faces there now. And what I appreciate the most is, you know, there's coaches that I have a, a tremendous amount of respect for. I can remember, and he won't remember, but uh, my second, my second or third year there, Anson Dorrance had a conversation. You know, I was able to talk to him after one of the presentations he gave, and he took time to talk to me, and that stuck with me. A guy that's won, you know, 21 national championships with North Carolina took took a few moments to talk to a new coach, a young coach, and and when you have people like that willing to share and help and take a, a, an interest, you know, a guy who, who's done it all, uh, that means a lot. And now you get to see these people all the time out there. And so it's a great community. You know, I don't think it matters if you coach uh, U5 or 
the professional teams were all doing the same stuff, so it, it's really nice. I love this edition that we always do. We turn over every stone to make sure we get all the championship coaches on, and I appreciate uh, you being on. Great story, Lewis. I'll see you in Thank Philly. You. Congratulations to you and the Jennies. Go celebrate, okay? Hey, I appreciate you taking the time to talk with me. I, it's, it's great. Thank you very much. Certainly my pleasure, Lewis Theobald, who led Central Missouri to the Women's D2 Championship. Now we move to D2 men. How about the University of Charleston in West Virginia? In 2014, they were in the final, just missing. 2015 semifinals. Back again in the final last year, all under Chris Grassy. Marshall took notice. They hired him. In steps Dan Stratford, who, by the way, we'll get to it, was a big-time player at West Virginia, spent time in the MLS, played over in England. I remember him. We're going to get to that. But he was there three-plus years with Chris Grassy. They promote him. And guess what happens? They win the national championship in PKs. 3-1. to one. They finished 21-1-2, and two, and they've got the natty in Charleston now. Coach, thanks for being with us. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. Yeah, how about that, right? You were there <laughs> for those three years, and uh, now it's time to take it home, right? Yeah, I think it would have been a tough one to handle had it been four years of, of getting so close and getting to the Final Four and not quite making it through. An amazing feeling, but uh, almost a small sense of relief as well that we finally got over that final hurdle. You enjoyed your time at West Virginia under Marlon the Block. You came back, spent a little bit of time with him then you jump over to Charleston with Chris mm-hmm. getting the bump up uh, it had to been a no-brainer for you to step up as the top man I'd like to think so yeah I felt like it was a good time for me to kind of step into my, my first head coaching role felt like the mentorship I had not only at WU, but, but certainly under Chris here at Charleston, had put me in a place where I felt ready to, to kind of have some a bit more ownership over a program and start to run my own programs. So, no, it was just an added bonus, to be honest, that, that in terms of in, that we'd had so much success and that I knew that I was going to be taking over a program that was knocking on the door of a national championship and, and, and really could have been a national champion in any one of the previous three years that I'd been there as an assistant as well. So, lucky me in that regard. I'm pretty sure you got a text or something from both Chris and Marlon after winning the title, right? I did. Um, the support has been has been overwhelming to the best wishes that have come come flooding in but uh yeah certainly special note to those two who, who definitely took the time to, to congratulate me and and again I, I stay in touch with, with with both of them frequently over the course of the season i'm an avid follower of wu just because that's my my alma mater but um you know, i've kept my eye on on chris and how marshall have done this year as well so you know they're they're, they're very good friends in the business talk about your team including uh, your goalkeeper paulo pita who must have come up big because you won pk's 3-1 it's been fantastic this year for all of the all of the defenders this year it's been quite a new backlight backline for us we've changed change systems change formations a little bit last spring when I took over which to a back three but four of that back five are brand new players this season so it's been very very pleasing that the recruits we brought in have been able to have such a big impact on the team immediately but that's obviously been solidified by our returning goalkeeper Paolo and then also Thomas Van Kaysil who was our, our senior captain this year who's just been an absolute rock whether he's played centre midfield or or as one of the back three. But let's talk about you because When I saw that you won and looked you up, I was like uh, thinking about one of the greatest days of my life. (laughs) And that was uh, growing up in Big Ten country. I did the first ever game on the Big Ten Network. It was West Virginia, Ohio State, and Columbus, Ohio. Then the next day, Michigan got knocked off by App State in football. But the first ever game on the Big Ten Network featured you. And I know uh, the result wasn't there, but uh, I knew you guys had a good team. You played an Ohio State team that made it to the College Cup. Do you remember that game? I do. We would had a fantastic year my junior year, so we were going into, that was my senior year, we were going into that year, hoping that we were the team going to College Cup that year and, and felt like we had the potential to, 
to make a run to the final four. So that was obviously uh, a dent in the uh, in the start of that season. But thankfully, we went on to them, then beat Penn State and and went on to a, a Sweet Sixteen run where eventually we lost to the eventual winners, Wake Forest, that year. Yeah, remind me. Uh, besides you, you had some other big time players that I think got uh, more than a cup of coffee in MLS or at least professionally on that team, right? Yeah, we had. From from my my junior to my senior year, we had we had a hell of a team. The likes of uh, Andrew Wright, who's actually the the assistant coach now at WVU, um, he went on to play back in England. But also in that team, Patrick Carroll, his eldest brother Brian Carroll, just retired from Philadelphia Union. Myself and Pat played at DC United together, which was quite a nice added bonus to have someone on the team that that I knew. But we also had Devin McTavish, who who was at DC United for a long time, and and now I now is is now working within commentary for them. Nick Noble before that. Uh, who's also just finished his career with Harrisburg, but uh, played at Chicago Fire and also had a small stint at LA Galaxy. And another centre forward called Jared Smith. I'm not sure we appreciated it at the time, but it was almost unheard of that I think we had seven or eight players from from that those two years that, that went on to play professional. And that's not to mention Jeff Cameron, who we played with for two years as well, who then then transferred and finished at Rhode Island. But we were all part of the same recruiting class, which is, like I said, kind of, kind of crazy to think that uh, we had that many players that then went on to play professionally beyond that. And I'm sure there's a few more that I should have named that I haven't. So. Yeah, that was a young Marlon LeBlanc, too, right? He was on fire. Morgantown was a destination for people from everywhere, including from England. How did you find yourself in Morgantown? I grew up playing academy football back in England. I was with Fulham Football Club. I should probably mention they were still in the Premier League then. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I fell short of a professional contract, uh, and I was actually recruited by the previous head coach, Michael Seabolt, who is now the associate head coach at Missouri State. When he first asked me, I think it was February of 2004, whether I was interested in going to America, I, I have to be honest, I said no. <laughs> I was still looking to, to find another club, trying, trying to play professionally myself at a young age. And eventually I came to my senses, thankfully, and, and, and made that decision. And it was the, probably the best decision I ever made. And it was definitely the best four years of my playing career that I ever had. So I had a fantastic student-athlete experience. And that's definitely shaped a lot of what we try and do now with our students here at Charleston. And it sounds like, Dan, you were able to fulfill that sort of dream. You went back to England and played a, a couple of years, right? I went to the Combine after my senior year and, and was drafted at D.C., obviously with the international restrictions and a couple of injury issues. Things didn't maybe go quite as I, I would have liked. And after a year, I actually went back to university, went back to WVU to finish my undergraduate degree. I still had a year left, then found myself playing uh, in Venice in Scotland and then one more year in England with a team called Hereford and League Two as well. I definitely was was, was pleased that in England and in, in, in pretty much everywhere else in the in in the world, you know, becoming a professional footballer is, is the number one profession that you want as a, as a young boy, and I was the same. So when I came so close at 18 years old, it, it felt like a bit of a gamble maybe to come to America and, and hopefully get that chance again. And I guess once I went through the collegiate system, I realized there was more to life than necessarily playing playing soccer, but at the same time, I was far more mature and far more capable of dealing with the pressures that, that, that come with that profession. So um, I was obviously very fortunate and very pleased that uh, not only had I finished my undergraduate degree, but I was also able to go on and play professionally as well. When did you know you wanted to be a coach, Dan? Probably when I was about 15, 16 years old and, and, and felt like uh, becoming a professional footballer was maybe not going to be um, the path that I pursued. Uh, my father was was a coach and had worked with a few professional clubs back home as well, so he was a huge influence on me. I knew I had a pretty good understanding of the game. It was it was my athletic traits that maybe were going to going to make it a struggle for me. So I've always had an inkling towards towards coaching. Again, once I once I got a taste of playing at the collegiate level, I felt like coaching at the collegiate level was going to be the niche in which I wanted to go. 
I couldn't, to be completely honest, I couldn't see myself going back to England and maybe coaching within the professional game or coaching within an academy system. I just feel like this is the perfect setup for me and, and kind of suits my, my strengths as a coach right now within the college game. Well said, and uh, certainly the United Soccer coach spends a lot of time with the college coaches as well. Will we see you in Philadelphia at the convention? Yeah, it's, uh, there's not a chance I won't be there uh, after going the last few years and, and having to either witness a different team pick up that national championship and that recognition. 100% my, me and my staff and some of our players will be making that trip to Philadelphia and we're going to milk this celebration for as long as we can, to be honest. Dan, you didn't know it, but we'll always be tied to that game in Columbus, Ohio. I know you didn't win it, but you went on to great success. It's a great pleasure to, to reconnect. I remember being so impressed with you as a player and now to see what you're doing as the top man at the University of Charleston. Well done you. Congrats on your national championship. Thank you very much. That's our D2 women's and men's champs. Our D3 champs are up next. Want 15 extra hours each week? Team Snap can help give it to you. Their customers save tons of time every week on communication, registration, scheduling, and more. Bring your club or league into the 21st century with Team Snap. Go to teamsnap.com slash NSCAA1. Moving right along with our championship coach edition of the United Soccer Coaches podcast presented by Team Snap. And we are thrilled to have the head coach of the D3 women's national champion, Williams College. They defeated Chicago by a score of one to nothing. And their coach now in her 16th season, Michelin Pinard, And she is on the show. Michelin, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. National champion Michelin Pinard, talk about uh, the final four, your game on in the semifinals and then the final. To be honest, I, I still, I'm still processing it. It was an incredible journey. The whole season was an incredible journey and certainly culminating in being at the final four, playing against two incredible teams. Our semifinal game against Harden-Simmons was a little bit of a chess match. They are incredibly organized, put a lot of numbers behind the ball, are incredibly hard to play through. And so we had to we worked the whole game to try to pull them apart. And it only happened in the last five minutes that we were able to do so. So it was an incredible game. And then to move on to the finals against a world-class team like Chicago, who I think in 20 years was one of the best, if not the best team we've seen. I was just thrilled the type of soccer we were able to put together on that day and um, play tough and gritty soccer when, when Chicago was coming at us. Um, it was just an incredible tournament for us. I'm so thrilled with what the women were able to create throughout the season and certainly in November and then ultimately December. All right, and it's your second title in the last three years. So talk about the, the key part of the team, perhaps some players that maybe were a part of both teams, Coach. Yeah, so this junior and senior class were, were a part of both teams, and this senior class um, pretty amazingly were at the Final Four three of the four years of their career, um, which is just insane. And just overall, this group of players have been working towards playing an incredibly creative style, and we were able to put the pieces together this year. And it was fun to see it all come together on Saturday. Well, obviously, you've enjoyed your time, 16th season at Williams. Tell us where it is and what makes it so special, Michelin. It's an unbelievable place in so many ways. I think maybe the most inspiring is that people across 
the entire community are pursuing excellence in whatever that they whatever they do, whatever they are passionate about. And so you're surrounded by not only talented people but passionate people, um, and that includes our musicians, students in theater, not certainly all of our student athletes, um, all our professors and coaches. We're, you're just surrounded by really really great people, and so I think we're all here in the in the Berkshires working towards trying to become our very best selves, whatever that means. And I think that's an that's an incredible place to spend your career. That and it, it's a place where you can balance both family and um, career. It's not easy to, to coach while you have children, and I've been able to do that. And so to have that balance, be at a place that values that balance um, is also quite incredible. So let's get to know you a little bit better. A 1998 graduate of Dartmouth College, you were named the head coach of the F's in the spring of 2002, but let's get this straight. You are a two-sport standout for the Big Green in both soccer and ice hockey. Talk a little bit about that. Uh, I'm not sure standout is quite the right phrase, but I did play both and and loved my experience with both. Learned so much um, with different coaching styles, and certainly it informed my coaching now. I played for Steve Swanson, who's now at Virginia, for the bulk of my soccer career, and I certainly... um, use him as a mentor and somebody I I lean on to frame my coaching style. So it was an incredible experience at Dartmouth, so similar to what the Williams experience is now that it gave me a great frame of reference for what I was trying to create here. Well, had I known that uh, you were with Steve Swanson, that would have been another way to track you down because he's a regular on this program, by the way, and uh, great success. And obviously, It'll probably mean some recognition at the United Soccer Coaches Convention in Philadelphia, Michelin. Will we see you there? I'm not sure. Having I have three little girls, um, six, four, and nine months, so it's a little hard to get away after season, but I'll, I'm going to try my best, um, certainly. Okay, and then moving forward to next year, knowing what this junior and senior class has meant to you, what does the team look like for next year? We're losing a lot, not only just on the field, but off the field. The, the senior class really generated an incredible sense of team. Um, they, like I like to say, they began with the end in sight and worked towards that. I think they're leaving the program in good hands, and I think there's some young players ready to step up. And that's what it takes to make sure year after year we're in the mix uh, amongst the best of programs in the country, and that's our goal. So there's some young players who are ready and excited to see um, what they're capable of um, next year. Michelin Pinard, the head coach of the Williams women's soccer team, won the championship in 15. They did it again this year. Congratulations on all of your success and what you're doing in the game and thanks for being on the United Soccer Coaches Podcast, Michelin. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Michelin Pinard helping Williams win two of the last three national championships for D3 women. Moving to D3 men, how about Messiah? They've won 11 national championships since 2000. They win another one, beating North Park 2-1. to They went 24-2-0 under Brad McCarty. He played at Messiah. He was an assistant coach at Messiah. And he's pretty much been around for all 11 national championships, including the one that they picked up this weekend. Congratulations, Brad McCarty, and thanks for being with us yet again. Thank you. Talk about uh, what you went through this weekend to win the 11th national championship. Yeah, I mean, it was, you know, no different than the regular season where we certainly found a, a way to, to come from behind three different times. We, we scored goals late. It's something that we had done all season long. It uh, wasn't something I was hoping we would do in the Final Four. But, you know, I think our guys demonstrated a tremendous amount of grit and toughness and resilience to 
stay focused and fight their way back. How do you describe Messiah soccer? In better words, how do you describe this power, right? 11 national championships since the year 2000. You've won more than you've lost, obviously. How would you describe what's going on there in Messiah? Yeah, I think a lot of it has to do with the culture and environment of, of the program. I think we bring in kids that are a great fit and believe what we believe and want what we want, which is a college experience that's a little bit different than maybe some others where, you know, we really ask them to be committed and bought into our core values. They need to understand them. You know, they need to embrace them. And, you know, by an upperclassman, they need to model them. Now, you also played at Messiah. So Messiah has been home forever. You're not going anywhere, right? You're going to keep on winning <laughs> natties. Yeah, I'm not I'm not going anywhere. I you know, grew up in the Philadelphia area and uh, graduated here in 93. I played for Leighton Shoemaker. Dave Brandt was the assistant coach when I played and, and was, you know, Dave was the head coach for the first eight years that I was here when I was his assistant. And uh, it's been a, it's been a great experience. It's, it's great to coach at your alma mater. It's been a brilliant, brilliant 17 years. Well, also, some of the other coaches you give credit to, Coach Brian Davidson, Coach Mark Steffens, who uh, I got to know well during his time with Charlotte, where he's back mm-hmm. again, making a mm-hmm. huge uh, imprint. Boy, I mean, that you're right. That's uh, all about values, all those guys. Yeah, I mean, there's been a lot of a lot of influential coaches in my life, certainly certainly the Charlotte Eagle connection and, and Brian Davidson and Mark Steffens, like you said. Roger Mast was, was one of my... So my high school coach, he's a, he's a college coach and has been for a long time at, at Eastern Mennonite University. And so as coaches, we always, we always draw from mentors in our lives, and, and I'm no different. And tell us uh, where Messiah is located in the wonderful state of Pennsylvania. Yeah, we're just right outside Harrisburg, so south-central Pennsylvania. Okay, does that mean uh, you're going to be able to make the trek to Philadelphia for the convention? I think I'll be able to make it. I think I'll be there. Are you going to be there? I am going to be there, and I think uh, hopefully I'll be on the stage when uh, they recognize you perhaps as Coach of the Year. Would that work? We'll have to see. (laughs) (laughs) Well, obviously that's always an honor, though, right, to be recognized by the United Soccer Coaches, formerly NSCAA? Yeah, you know, and and any postseason award, you know, even if it's to an individual, whether that's a coach or a player, you know as well as I do, it's it's always a team award. I mean, and and I think that the NSCAA, call it what you want, they're – Decision to honor an entire staff, I thought, was a good move. I think they did it, started that last year or the year before. And, and certainly, you know, there's no one coach that does it. It's a staff that does it. Well, speaking of uh, the team, you know, the last thing here is, uh, can you talk a little bit about uh, the key players on the team that helped you win that 11th national championship? Sure. Uh, you know, I think what characterizes this, this team, you know, I think it was uh, – an ability to, to get better, to grow, to fight, scratch, and claw. You know, some of the players, some of our seniors, when I think of, that just did a brilliant job with leadership. Kirby Robbins up top was an All-American. Dakota Rosenberg is an All-American. Colby Thomas is an All-American. We had a lot of seniors that provided a lot of leadership, both on and off the field. Zeb Cross and David Figueroa didn't play a lot, but you know, they provided a ton of leadership for us. You know, Josh Bender has been a starter for us the last couple of years. Danny Brandt came back and, and started as attacking center midfielder and had a big impact on our team and our program. And so there's a lot of guys that were able to contribute. But certainly the seniors, I think, had an impact not only on, on the team, but also, you know, I think a strong culture and environment that, that started with them.
All right, Brad McCarty, the head coach of the Messiah men's soccer team, your D3 champions, their 11th title since 2000. Congratulations, Coach. Thanks for being with us. Thanks, Dean. Our D2 champs covered. Our D3 champs covered. Up next, it's NAIA men and women, both championship coaches on the program as promised. Looking for ways to improve your training sessions? Quick Goal has supplied the highest quality soccer goals, seating, field, and training equipment for over 30 years. From backyards to the world's greatest pitches, Quick Goal has products essential for every level of the game. As an official partner to the United Soccer Coaches and technical partner to U.S. Soccer, Quick Goal knows what equipment you need to take your game to the next level. Visit quickgoal.com to satisfy all your equipment needs. Once again, here's Dean Linky. Favorite time of the year and favorite show, our championship coach edition of the United Soccer Coaches podcast, where we track down all of our championship coaches. There were seven crowned this past weekend. Of course, we had Paul Ratcliffe on last weekend, so we'll check him off the box. And then we go D2 and D3. And trust me, we never forget our good folks at the NAIA. The soccer there is fantastic. Okay, that sets us up with Jason Christ in his 17th year at Spring Arbor University. And guess what? His second title in the last three years to go with a runner-up finish. The man is getting it done at Spring Arbor. They had a 2 nothing win over Benedictine of Kansas for their second title in the last three years. Coach, that's pretty impressive. Thanks for being with us. Thanks. It's great to be here. Let's talk about the Final Four, your semifinal game, and then the 2 nothing win. What went right? Break it down for us. We had a tough road in. I think this year we had the way the bracket worked out. It, there were some underseeded or some undervalued teams, I think, that kind of got into we were the two seed in the tournament. And so... From the really from the quarterfinal forward, we had we had tough matches. Um, we played Westmont out of California, who's traditionally a powerhouse in the NAI, and we're able to get by them 2-0, good group. And then we had a rematch in the semifinal of last year's final, the the 2016 final, where we played North, University of Northwestern Ohio, who is a, a highly international program. No no American players on the on the team really. They beat us a year ago, 1-0 in the final, and we were able to kind of get a little bit of revenge and. Knocked them out 2 nothing in the semi this year. From there, it was on to Benedictine, and that was uh, kind of an all-American final, I guess. They're a team comprised of Kansas City-type players, and uh, it was really kind of a slugfest that last game. Here with Jason Chris, the head coach at Spring Arbor University, the Cougars. And look at this, okay? So in 2010, you're in the tournament. 2011, Sweet 16. 2012, Final Four. 2013, back in. 2014, Sweet 16. 2015, 23-2-1 national champions. Last year, as you said, you lost to Stuart Gore in Northwest Ohio, and this year you get the revenge and you win it. What is so fantastic about Spring Arbor where everybody's showing up to help you win some championships? I think we've been fortunate to create a pretty good culture just inside the program in general, a good soccer culture and a good culture of people. We have a high quality of student athlete here. In 2011, we initiated a reno of our, our soccer facility. We have uh, two-star field out here with a, a really nice uh, soccer culture. It's very intimate, a lot of crowd support from our, our fans. And it's just kind of continued to roll, with, like just gaining momentum, rolling forward. So it just feels like it was, it was coming, I guess. 
you were always going to be there. I mean, here you are. You're from Spring Arbor, went to high school there at Western. You played at Spring Arbor, and now 17 years as the coach. I joke they must have hired you when you're 15 because uh, you're looking good, coach. But uh, this is home, right? I mean, you grew up there, and, and you know the value of a great Midwestern home right there in Michigan, I take it. Yeah, yeah we're really blessed at Spring Arbor to have a really great community of people. It's a great place to raise a family, uh, kind of a quiet little town just off of a more of a major city about eight miles outside of Jackson and really great culture and a great team atmosphere across athletics and across the campus culture in general it's it's a very great place to to work well and Michigan's had a big year in soccer this year right the Wolverines were back on Western Michigan was phenomenal Michigan State just penalty kicks away from making the final four I guess my point is there's some pretty good soccer players in Michigan there are there are fortunately some great soccer in here, and you'll if you look at our roster, it's primarily comprised of Michigan players. There's not a lot of need for us to go into neighboring states to pull to pull quality kids. They're right here, you know, on the west side. There's a great pocket of soccer, and over on the east side near Detroit, there's there's great club soccer over there as well. It's we're very fortunate. And you also do some work with the Michigan Rush as as well, right? I have in the past. I'm no longer doing that. I actually just accepted a position a few weeks ago with. Lansing United, which is a UWS team, kind of a summer semi-pro team for the women. So I'm no longer doing club, just just ODP and and uh, the UWS. All right, you've coached coming into the season, 11 All-Americans, one National Player of the Year. Remind us who that was. Bethany Balser. She received that in her freshman year in 2015. She was the first freshman ever to receive that award and I, I don't know where that's going this year but I would think she'd be a pretty strong candidate for it again this year. One of the great things about uh, the United Soccer Coaches is they you know always take time to recognize the champions and also the coaches of the year. No guarantee but we expect we may see you. Will you be in Philadelphia perhaps if you do win coach of the year? I will. I'm the, the NAI um, Women's Soccer Coaches Association president so I have to be there either way but I, I would be there regardless. Jason Chris, Spring Arbor University, the national champion, two out of the last three years. Do you have a team that could get back there again and win it next year, Coach? I think we have as good a shot as anybody who's in the top ten. I think when we return a lot of key players, we lose some key pieces too. Um, but that's the name of the game is having the right people, and hopefully our class that's coming in is going to, be, going to give us a boost and help us uh, maintain where we're at. Jason Chris, champion again, two out of the last three years. Congratulations on your success, and we'll see you in Philadelphia. Thanks so much. We'll see you there. Our championship coach edition of the United Soccer Coaches podcast is complete because we are joined by the head coach of the NAIA Men's National Champion. That's Wayland Baptist out of Texas. And their head coach giving Wayland Baptist their first ever national championship is Christian Ospina by way of Columbia through Florida into Texas and now a national champion head coach. What a weekend for you, Coach. Congratulations. Thank you, Dean, for having us here. Really, really exciting for us. Still can't believe it, but I'm here. Thankful we got for giving this chance of being part of this team. The team that you put together, like what's the makeup of this team? Where are your players from? <laughs> we have players from everywhere. Uh, uh, we have players from England, uh, Colombia, Uruguay in South America, Mexico, Dallas, Jamaica, everywhere, uh, Australia too, Ireland, Scotland, <laughs> uh, you name it, we have it. And, and that sort of melting pot had to be so excited with just over a minute remaining in the second overtime. You get the winner against Missouri Valley. Talk about the incredible excitement of winning it that late. Well, before this, this game, we went to two overtimes, and we passed in the case. 
we're at that point where we said, uh, I don't think we can go to another round of kids again. And one of the last plays where uh, one of our defenders uh, didn't give up, uh, rescued the ball almost in the line. And, you know, Federico from Uruguay, South America, scored the winning goal. We just ran in the field. <laughs> Went crazy. I couldn't believe it. Definitely a dream come true. Now, prior to coming to Wayland, you played soccer at Georgia Perimeter in 2009 and 10. In 2009, your team was the National Junior College Athletics Association <laughs> runner-up. And then as a high school player, you were a member of two Florida State and national championship teams. So that's all you do, Coach, is win titles <laughs> or play for titles, right? Well, yeah. I thank God for letting me be you know, part of those teams. And, yeah, I guess we, we part of that winning, winning tradition. You came over, you said, when you were around 14 years old with your family from Columbia to Florida, right? Yes, sir. Okay, and then how in the world did you end up uh, getting into coaching and getting, uh, ending up in Texas? When I went to Georgia Perimeter, uh, we played two years there, uh, having a successful season, make us come to uh, Wayland, to Texas. The coach that was here before, J-Man Schaffner, that he's right now, uh, well, the last year he was coaching uh, Luxembourg national team. He was the first assistant coach. Uh, he decided to bring me here to Wayland, and that's what basically started off. You know, we, he, we came to a team that um, probably won three games in the whole year. And us being a first class, we kind of changed that a little bit. And, you know, year after year, we got a little bit better. Uh, the coach that was here basically um, brought me in, and I needed a couple times to graduate, and he made me be the GA. So I learned from him a lot. Uh, I've been, the, uh, you know, had the pleasure of being coach, um, you know, for one of the best coaches and in the whole nation. I was coaching high school by the guy from FC Dallas, the academy coach, Luchi Gonzalez. Academy coach in Miami, too, so... Uh, you know, I always had something really good going on with the coaching, but when Coach Schaffner from here from Wayland decided to get the job at um, uh, Luxembourg, uh, basically I was the next one in line. You know, they offered me the job. I took it at four years old. Really hard, really tough. I didn't know what I was getting into, but, you know, that's how I got into it. Kind of. And then, you know, we just went from there. Great story, and obviously the future is bright. Uh, last thing, you know, re tell everybody where Wayland Baptist is because Texas is probably bigger than Columbia <laughs> anywhere, right? So, and you got Dallas and Houston and San Antonio. Like, where, where, are you, what are you close to there, Coach? Uh, we're in West Texas, more, more to the north. We're close to Lubbock by uh, Texas Tech. Like, we're like five hours north from Dallas, northwest, I'll say. So. Small town uh, with really nice people, you know, hardworking people. A town that gave us, uh, you know, gave us the chance to coach, you know, at a really young age. So I'm really uh, thankful for that. Wow, you're an outstanding young man, Christian Ospina, and you're also a national champion now, Coach. Congratulations on all your success and enjoy it, okay? Thanks so much for being on the program. Yes, sir. Thank you. We promised six national championship coaches, and we delivered. And we got to get back to also getting to know the members of our 30 under 30 class. We'll do that with Neil Oyston to end the show up next. Managing your club or league shouldn't feel like a second job. With Team Snap, it doesn't have to. They help their customers save time and sanity on tasks such as communication, registration, scheduling, and more. Bring your club or league into the 21st century with Team Snap. Go to teamsnap.com slash NSCAA1.
This is the Championship Coach Edition of the United Soccer Coaches Podcast. It's a full show, but we are getting back to our roots, and that is spending time again with uh, one of the outstanding members of the United Soccer Coaches 30 Under 30 program, 15 outstanding men and women who are getting it done under the age of 30 around the passion and love of the game. And that means we're joined here by Neil Oyston, who is the director of coaching for Wenatchee FC, a youth club just outside of Seattle. And Neil joins me now. Neil, thanks for being with me. Thanks for having me, Dean. Yeah, Neil, first of all, congratulations on being a member of the United Soccer Coaches 30 Under 30. What made you want to try to be a part of this great organization? I've been a part of the organization now for, for a couple of years. I've been on a few of the courses side of my level six a couple of years back and kind of just grown with, with the company. Took it all the way up to my premier diploma, which I achieved last year, and I was just super impressed with the layout of the company. It's an education piece. Just to meet so many incredible people, that part of the organization has just kind of fulfilled me as a coach, made me a better coach, and kind of broadened my network base to work with, with other people who are kind of, you know, going the same direction in my career. And when the opportunity came up to apply for the 30 Under 30 program, I know a lot of great coaches have applied, and um, it was my second year of application. I was just absolutely delighted to, to be awarded that and super excited about uh, what that means and, and uh, the upcoming challenges that that will bring to me. So it's very excited to be part of the program and, and to be part of the United Soccer Coaches Association. Talk about the decision to come over to the U.S., I guess, at the time to join Challenger Sports. I played my trade at Leeds University for, for three years there, and then um, that's how I kind of got into coaching. Uh, Challenger Sports, they recruit uh, kind of young, young soccer players at universities, and, um, you know, I just kind of, Jumped at the chance to come over here in 2012. Now uh, was when I first came over, and um, it just opened so many so many doors for me, Dean. Um, I, my home base was in Seattle. Um, I was here for about uh, eight to ten weeks, kind of just coaching summer camps. Um, we went to places like Idaho, Northern California, Montana. I'd also the opportunity to go over to New York. You know, I've always wanted to to be in America. Um, it's a it's a beautiful country. A land of opportunity, as I say, and you know, it was kind of an easy decision for me to kind of come and and learn my trade, and you know, it's challenger really did open the doors for me, and now I'm lucky to to be director of coaching here uh, at a club in in the Pacific Northwest. But opened so many doors for me, and I'm just really blessed to be doing what I love to do, and to having the impact that that I'm having with the younger generation. So long may it continue. And tell me how that door opened at Wenatchee FC. As we're doing these summer camps uh, with Challenger Sports, uh, we're lucky enough to kind of um, go into smaller clubs and, and to coach there. And, you know, just I fell into it, uh, kind of became good friends with some directors at, at the club here, uh, maintained a contact um, at Wenatchee FC. And as I was continuing my journey, there was an opportunity to come back here, and I just I took it. I'm a firm believer of uh, taking every opportunity that comes your way. And I've been here ever since. I kind of started off uh, coaching a couple of teams, worked my way up. Um, I've had the opportunity to grow here, uh, to be surrounded by so many great people. And uh, the community itself have just been amazing to me. So I'm, I'm truly thankful and grateful to the people who have allowed me to do what I do here. And, um, and and just taking it from there. So um, long may that continue as well. Speaking of the community, I mean, you're not that far from Seattle and the Seattle Sounders. Uh, you appreciate big-time soccer coming from England. How awesome has it been for you to be around that program? Absolutely. And the uh, Seattle Sounders are through to the MLS Cup for the, for the second time, which is great. And, 
you know, we kind of, you know, we kind of feel that, you know, in, in these towns when, when, the, when the Sounders or, you know, obviously the U.S. men's national team, they haven't got through, obviously, to the World Cup. But when, when big teams do so well, um, then it has an impact on, on a community. And, yes, we all know that soccer is, is a growing sport here. And in the short time that I've been here, the, the game has just, it, it's just progressed unbelievably. And I'm super excited to be a part of that. And um, as the Sounders continue, as, as the profile of the game keeps growing, then that means, obviously, little, you know, young kids who are coming through the game, they're going to be more aware. They're going to have dreams about wanting to be part of this sport. And if people like, people like myself can just lend a hand to those up-and-coming players of the, of the community, then, then who knows what they can achieve. And, you know, I'm a firm believer of, you know, giving back, back to the community and, and helping out those kids um, kind of achieving the dream that I'm, I'm on and enjoying the journey that, that comes along. But, yeah, by all means, the profile of the founders is, is really enabling kids to be aware of the, of the game out here. Finally, let's take a look at that journey. Five years from now, Neil Oyston will be doing what? I think it's just about taking every opportunity. Uh, I think it's great to set goals, but uh, I'm, I'm currently just living my dream right now, and I just want to be the best coach that I can be. I just want to give the best that I can, and, you know, through the networks that I've created and through um, the people that I've met, you know, I'm, I'm hopefully going to continue that journey, and who knows, you know, I only kind of get to the very top if possible, and, but just also kind of sticking to my core values of giving back and uh, motivating players, motivating coaches, educating coaches, and just raising the profile of the game, and who knows where that'll take me. I'm, I'm a guy who's an ambitious guy, and I'll take anything that comes my way, but sticking to those core values is what got me to this country, and by all means, it's, uh, it's been... It's been a rewarding journey. Um, it's been difficult along the way, kind of moving from, from my home country over to America. And uh, I mean, I've achieved so much in the last three or four years, and I'm excited to see what the next five years will bring me. Neil Oyston, another outstanding member of our United Soccer Coaches 30 Under 30. Coach, we hope to see you in Philly at the uh, convention. Absolutely. We'll see you there. Thanks, Dean. Thank you, Neil. I also want to thank Stephen Goff, who kicked off the show 30 years with the Washington Post. I also want to thank Rob Kehoe from the United Soccer Coaches, all six of our national championship coaches and all the good people with United Soccer Coaches. We'll be back next week to recap the MLS Cup and the Men's College Cup, that and so much more. I'm Dean Linke. Thanks for being with us on the United Soccer Coaches Podcast, presented by Team Snap. The NSCAA is now United Soccer Coaches. We aren't changing who we are, just what you call us. Start your free, no-risk trial membership today. Go to unitedsoccercoaches.org slash join.